All right, turn with me, if you would, to, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I was uh, half joking, half kind of not joking to the, uh, the prayer group that, me- that in Sunday school this morning, um, we talked about God's decree and God's sovereignty and the doctrine of election. Um, and then this morning I'm preaching on parenting. So two topics that nobody has opinions on. Um, so quite the morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're, we're really going to be looking at the entire chapter, um, but I am not going to make you stand up while we read the entire chapter. Um, so we're just going to read, we're just going to read verses 5 through 7, because really the heart, uh, the heart of the chapter is found there. Uh, so if you'd stand with me as we read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. Um, God, we thank you for this text. Um, God, and I thank you for the, the ordained means by which um, you... You purpose for children to be raised up in the Lord. Uh, so God, help me to speak clearly. Um, and I and also pray that you would help the people to, to hear um, to hear rightly. And in that, I mean um, to, hear, to hear what I do say, maybe not what I, what I don't say. Um, so God, we pray that you would be on this time. Uh, we trust that the preaching of your word is powerful if it's done in the spirit. Um, so we ask for that to happen. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So I want to talk briefly just the, uh, the, the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So in Exodus, God has led the Israelites out of slavery. Uh, they, they get the law. Um, and then they, Moses brings the Israelites to the cusp of the promised land. Uh, God has already promised to Abraham starting back in Genesis 12. This is a, a promise that's been made. Um, and so they're at the cusp of the promised land. And Moses sends out 12 spies. Two of those spies, Joshua, Caleb, come back and they say, we got it. God will be faithful. He's promised this to us like it's already delivered to us. Uh, The other 10 spies say, there's no way. We can't do it. The people are too big. They'll crush us. Uh, Unfortunately, the people of Israel don't listen to Joshua and Caleb. They listen to the 10 spies. And they say, yeah, let's just not go in. Let's not trust God's promises. Let's not trust God's faithfulness. So as a result, God tells the Israelites, okay, um, if you want to play it that way, then you're going to wander the wilderness for 40 years. The point being, um, that entire faithless generation who did not trust in God's promise were going to die out. 40 years was long enough for that entire generation to die, and then the next generation would then go in and inherit the promised land. So Moses, uh, still alive at this point, um, and that, you know, that's another story, he also doesn't get to go in. Uh, but this is his Deuteronomy is Moses' last bit of instruction to the new generation of Israelites about to go in and take the promised land. So when Moses goes to address this new generation, he tells them, do not repeat the sins of your fathers. You know what God has done. You know God's commands. Um, and then here's the key. How, how are these things to be passed down? The story of what God has done and God's commands. How, are this, how is this to be passed down? 
And this is really important uh, because I think we would all agree that, that it's important that this gets passed down. And out of all the ways that God declares this is how you continue this faith tradition, he says, instruct your children in these things. I think we would do well to not overlook that. Um, so the title for my sermon this morning is, is The Parental Mandate. The Parental Mandate. And here's a concern, um, and, and I think it's a rightful concern. I think it's a, a concern backed up by experience myself that I've seen and, and research, um, that over the last, it, it's been over a century, this is not a recent phenomenon, I think we're really starting to reap the fruit of it now, uh, but over the last century or more, there has been a tendency for, for Christian parents who love the Lord, who love their children, uh, want to give their children the best, but there's been a tendency for them to, to abdicate the responsibility that God has given them to instruct their children in the Lord, uh, to abdicate that responsibility to fully to, to other people. Um, and, and I fear that the church, instead of saying, hey, you know what, the, this is the truth of Scripture, this is what the Bible says, um, and instead of correcting and disciplining and even equipping parents to, to do this, uh, I fear that the church has assisted in that um, and said, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll do it. Um, and built seminary programs to, on how to teach kids and built big programs and instead of uh, how it used to be, which was the church and the family together. Um, and not, not the church saying, you, you just give them to us and we'll do it. I want to read you this quote from R.C. Sproul. And then we're going to dive into the text. R.C. Sproul says this. I don't think there's a mandate to be found in sacred scripture that is more solemn than this one. That we are to teach our children the truth of God's word is a sacred, holy responsibility that God gives to his people. And it's not something that is to be done only one day a week in Sunday school. We can't abdicate the responsibility to the church. The primary responsibility for the education of children, according to scripture, is the family, the parents. That's R.C. Spool. Notice, uh, he does not say the only responsibility for the education of children is the family. But he does say the primary responsibility for the education of children, according to scripture, is the family. So we're going to look at two things. Very simple. One, that, that parents are called by God to show their children how to love, fear, and obey God. And that two, parents are called to teach their children how to love, fear, and obey God. Let's look at chapter 6. Um, and this is going to be brief. We're not going to dig deep because you could, you could preach a sermon on, on a lot of these things. Um, but I'm going to briefly go through it. And, and I want you to kind of have in your mind uh, th that the point is that this starts with you. That the instruction of your children starts with you and your walk with the Lord. So in verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. And then down to verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then down to verse 12. Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. And down to verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And then down to 21, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Again, looking at that, uh, the, the point that I hope you see is that, is that this starts, like the, the instruction, the raising up of the next generation, starts with the obedience of the current generation, right? The obedience of the current generation. Uh, the most important thing is where are you at? Because you can instruct your kids all day long, and if you're not living it, they're going to see right through it. We've all heard the phrase, do as I say, not as I do. Um, now, there's instances where there's nothing wrong with that. For example, uh, my senior year in high school, we had a track coach, and our track coach had been a middle linebacker in college. And at 50 years old, he had the body that you would expect of someone who had been a middle linebacker in college. He, uh, he had, like, multiple knee surgeries, and, um, he, you know, he wasn't running a whole lot. Well, my senior year of high school, uh, I didn't have to run track because there was no football the next year, but all my friends were. And so I told my coach, I said, hey, can I just high jump and not run? Because I want to I go to all the track meets and hang out with my friends, but I don't want to, like, throw up. I don't, I don't want to run. Um, <laughs> And so he said, okay, well, let's, let's see what you got. So I jumped, and it, and it turns out um, that I have a, just a, a natural uh, proclivity for jumping over sticks. Uh, it can't be a cool sport. It has to be high jumping. Um, and so, so my coach, who I don't think could have jumped onto the mat, he, man, he started calling everybody he knew that knew anything about high jump. He started, this was like before YouTube, and so he started ordering like VHS tapes on like how to high jump. And this, this guy who knew nothing about high jump, who couldn't high jump himself, took me from, hey, coach, can I hang out with my friends, to getting college scholarship offers in the course of about three months. Um, so for this guy, do as I say, not as I do, worked perfectly, right? Because um, was, he was not doing it. Uh, but he would, man, he would watch me and he would say, you did this wrong. This step was off. You weren't leaning enough. Like you didn't get enough of your momentum going up. Coached me all the way, all the way through. However, when we start talking about issues of attitude, behavior, morals, ethics, do as I say, not as I do, goes out the window, right? Um, for example, when, uh, when, you're told if you don't wear a mask, you're going to kill your grandma. Um, and then government officials have big galas and parties where, you know, um, nobody's wearing them. Uh, or when you have 
world leaders flying like a thousand private jets to a central location uh, to talk about why we should stop our people driving five minutes to work. Um, when you see all these things, right, there's a sense of injustice that we, when, when it's do as I say, not as I do, in those kinds of issues, we, we sense the injustice in it, right? We sense the injustice. Now, our children, if we try to use do as I say and not as I do, they're going to sense the injustice, right? Robert McShane, Scottish preacher in the 1800s, said this. He said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. You may have heard that quote before, uh, but it's a great quote because the role of a pastor is, is many. pastor wears many hats. Uh, preaching, first and foremost, is the primary responsibility of the, the lead teaching pastor or elder, but also visitations and counseling and finances. And a couple weeks ago, Mickey and I spent two entire work days running internet cable through the ceiling. Um, so, so pastor wears many hats. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is a pastor's personal holiness. If a pastor is not walking in, with the Lord and the pastor is not pursuing holiness and if his personal holiness is all out of whack, it doesn't matter what a great preacher he is. It doesn't matter how great a counselor he is, right? On the other hand, um, a pastor who is pursuing holiness doesn't have to be the best preacher in the world. He doesn't have to be the best counselor in the world because the greatest need of a pastor's people is his personal holiness. So listen to this. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, Friends, the greatest need of your children is your personal holiness. The greatest need of your children is your personal holiness. Their greatest need is for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Their greatest need is for you to fear God. Their greatest need is for you to have faith in God, even in difficult circumstances. Their greatest need is for them to see mom and dad don't go after the idols of the world. Their greatest need is to say, hey, mom and dad say you should pray and read your Bible, and they actually do it, and I see them do it. Nothing turns a, teen, a child, a teenager, a young adult away from God like hypocrisy, right? D.A. Carson wrote this. He said, the worst possible heritage to leave with children is high spiritual pretension and low performance. Yeah. Right? The worst possible heritage to leave to your children is high spiritual pretension, saying a whole lot, but low performance. Not actually living up to what you're telling your kids they should live up to. What did Jesus say in Matthew 18, 6? He said this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Those are strong words, right? Uh, from, the, from the teacher of love that a lot of people like to paint Jesus solely as. You may think that is far too great of a burden for me to bear as a parent. And the truth is, you're right. It is too far of a great of a burden for the parent to bear. None of this is, is in our own power. We always have to remember this. That it's done in the grace of God, revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, applied to our heart by the Holy Spirit. I want to read this. It's from the uh, 1689 Baptist Confession, chapter 16, um, on good works. 
It says this, Believers are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that they bear fruit leading to holiness and have the outcome eternal life. Their ability to do good works does not arise at all from themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. To enable them to do good works they need, in addition to the graces they have already received, an active influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do his good pleasure. Yet this is no reason for them to grow negligent as if they were not required to perform any duty without a special motion of the Spirit. Instead, they should be diligent to stir up the grace of God that is in them. So even at Northridge, as we talk a lot about pursuing holiness and seeking God, it's never talked about in the concept of trying to muster it up yourself, right? Um, Because that's a futile effort. Instead, we talk about it from the perspective of humbling ourselves before God, submitting ourselves to God, and asking God to do a work in us. The parent must show their kid how to love, fear, and obey God. And when we fail, which we all inevitably will by the end of today, I'm sure, you know, lose, just snap a little bit, you know, third and ten during the Super Bowl today, and that's when your kid needs to, you know, help in the bathroom or something, right? When we fail, which we all inevitably will, we don't, we don't collapse under the weight of guilt and shame. Instead, we collapse at the foot of the cross of Christ. We hold on to the gospel, which, which says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you have now been made alive in Christ. So when we fail, and I think this is the big one, when you talk about like, well, my parents were hypocrites, and so, right? It's not that we don't fail. It's that when we fail, we admit it, and we talk to our kids about it. Have you ever been caught in sin by your child? Is that not the most awkward thing in the world, right? Uh, like in traffic, you're like, yeah, that idiot. Daddy, we don't say that word, right? All the time. When we fail, we admit it, and that's a humbling experience. But when that happens, we have to have the humility to say, you know what? You're right. That was not okay. That was a sin against God. And Dad now has to ask God for forgiveness. I've sinned against God. If your sin is against your child, guess who else you ask for forgiveness, right? It is a humbling thing as a parent, but a necessary thing to acknowledge when you sin against your children, admit it to them, ask their forgiveness, and maybe even you hear, you, you let them pray with you as you ask God's forgiveness for your sin. But here's the good part, is that afterwards, uh, you tell them, now it's over. Like, it's over. Why? Because dad has trusted in Christ as Savior, and the blood of Jesus has already covered my sins. The sin that dad committed has already been paid for by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. So the parent shows their children how to love, fear, and obey God. So it starts with that. That's the most important thing. doesn't matter what you teach your kids if your life does not reflect that, right? I think we can all agree on that. But two, a parent teaches their child how to love, fear, and obey God. This is R.C. Sproul again. Uh, this is the, sa- the same article that I quoted from earlier. He said this, I don't, have, I don't know how many times I've heard parents who are members of churches say to me, I intentionally never discuss theology or religion with my children because I want them to believe whatever they come to believe honestly and not because they've been indoctrinated by us in the home. I don't want them to be slaves to a parental tradition. 
I want them to experience reality on its own terms and come to whatever conclusion they draw from the evidence. Sproul writes, such sentiments mystify me because they are at such odds with the teaching of Scripture. Um, and I've heard forms of that many times in, you know, just 10 years of, uh, of, of vocational ministry. Um, of like, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to force it on them, right? But what is the teaching of Scripture? Verse 2 says this, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. Um, that sounds an awful like tradition, right? And I think one of the problems is that tradition has become a bad word in the, mod- in the modern day. Um, you know, if, if you have a traditional view of marriage, uh, what that really means is you're, you're a homophobic bigot, right? Um, or if you go to the traditional service at a church with two services, what you mean is you're going to the church that, or the service that all the old people go to that's just a bunch of hymns, right? So tradition has become a, a, a bad word in the modern day. And, and if we're being honest, tradition, man-made tradition is, can be a bad thing. Not always can be a bad thing. You look at Jesus' main beef with the Pharisees was their man-made tradition. That they had taken God's tradition, they had added on top of it, and created a burden that the people couldn't bear. But the thing is that tradition that is founded on the word of God is not only a good thing, it's the God-ordained means by which that tradition is passed on. Tradition in and of itself is not bad if that tradition is God-given tradition founded on the word of God. So verse 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. So here's an interesting word. This, this word translated teach diligently uh, can also be translated as, as repeat or to pierce or to prick. Or my favorite is to wet or sharpen. So you shall sharpen your children. Um, so that, that's not a passive thing. Nobody passively sharpens a knife. If you do, uh, good luck to you, right? This is not a passive thing. God gave you children or put children in your life, gave you nieces and nephews and grandkids or whatever, and you are to sharpen them like you sharpen a knife. Can you do that by dragging them to church once a week? Is that, is that enough? The testimony of Scripture is no. You shall talk of them when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, and when you rise, the point being all the time. And I think there's two implications here, okay? One implication is that we take intentional, formal time to instruct our children. Intentional, formal time to instruct our children, where you sit down and you say, okay, like this is instruction time. We are going to talk about this. We're going to read our Bible, pray, whatever it is. Formal instruction time. But I think also is the the intentional, informal time of instruction. Still intentional, um, but the informal type of instruction. So over dinner, as you're driving in the car, as you're getting groceries, and if you have small kids, you know that like this, these are the best opportunities because you never know what's going to come out of their mouth, right? Um, I mean, I can a, a thousand examples of just sitting at dinner and, and you know we're eating, we're enjoying our dinner, and Bexley looks around and goes, "Mom, do all these people love God?" Right? Like. I'm just trying to eat a cheeseburger, but if we want to have, like, that discussion, right? And so, like, those kinds of opportunities are, are when she asks, why do, we, why do people raise their hands when they sing? Like, gives you an opportunity. Why do we go to church? 
All these opportunities um, to have these intentional, informal times of instruction. Down to verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out of there, from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So when the Israelite son asks him, uh, what is the meaning? Why do we do this? Is the Israelites' response, because if we don't, like Johnny Cash said, he's going to strike us down, right? Is that, is that the answer that the Israelite gives? No. The answer is, why do we do these things? Why do we obey God's commands? Let me tell you what God has done for us. This is, this is a significant point to grab a hold of. God leads the Israelites out of Egypt. Does he lead them out of Egypt before or after he has given them the law to follow? He gives it to them before he's given them the law to follow. He pulls them out of slavery. He rescues them from slavery. And then he says, obey me, right? Or when he gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 20, uh, they start in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. But what does verse 2 say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God is the initiator. This is what I've done for you. Now you obey me. Here's what I expect for you. It is not you obey me, so I'll do these things for you. Right? That's the difference between a grace-driven faith and an obedience, works-driven faith. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. I, I, this is true for me. I assume it's true for most of you that God did not save me uh, because I loved him so much, right? That's, n- that's not how it works. Instead, God in his grace pulls us out of sin, takes us, as Ephesians 2 says, from being dead in our sin to being made alive in Christ. And, and then, and Ephesians 2 is a, a great place to go for that, now that we've been made alive in Christ, now, Walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand for you. So um, the, the point of that is, is that this is not a matter of giving our kids a, rules, a list of rules to obey. If all we're doing is giving kids a list of rules to obey, then we're creating uh, moral, good, well-behaved little kids that are, that are on the path to hell. Right? Um, nobody wants moralism. Moralism does not save us. So it's not a matter of giving our kids a list of rules to, to obey. It's a matter of giving our kids a gospel to 
believe. So when our kids ask, what's the meaning of this? Like, why do we do these things? Why do we go to church? Why do people raise their hands? Why do we go on out, outreach? Um, our response is not or should not be because I say so or because God says so primarily. Instead, it should be, here's the gospel. Here's what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And because of that, we do this, right? Why do we go to church? Bexley asked that in the car a few, a few weeks ago. Uh, the answer was not because Hebrews 10, 12, whatever the reference is, says we have to do it, and if we don't, God's going to be mad at us. Um, no, it's, well, because here's the gospel. And if we believe the gospel, and if we've been brought from death to life, then the Bible says that people who have been saved by Jesus Christ out of their sin should gather together to praise him, to learn together, to grow together. You see how there's a, a difference between a, a, a moral, behavior-driven instructing of your children and a gospel-driven instruction of your children. None of this is optional. Parents have been given a mandate by God. Uh, you must show your kids how to love, fear, and obey God. And I would even go so far as to say, based on verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons. And then if you flip over to uh, either First or Second Timothy, when Paul talks to Timothy, he says you've received your faith from your mom and from your grandma. Continue in that faith that you've, that you've had. Um, I would go so far as to say that, that grandparents, uh, I, would, I, would in, I would include you in this mandate as well. Especially if your children aren't fulfilling their mandate to your grandchildren. Um, aunt, uncle, friend, neighbor, don't say, well, well I'm off the hook on this one, right? Uh, mostly because that's just a very poor attitude to have. Uh, two, you have influence somewhere. Every single one of you in here has influence on a kid somewhere. I look over at Bexley, she's not sitting next to her mom, she's sitting next to Amber and Colin, right? They have influence. We all have influence somewhere. And where we have influence, we have a responsibility to show kids how to love, fear, and obey God and to teach them how to love, fear, and obey God. Remembering, again reiterating, that the most important thing for your kids, for your grandkids, for your nieces, for your nephews, for your neighbor's kids, the most important thing is your personal holiness. But beyond that, um, some really, really practical things is to take time for inten- take steps for intentional time for instruction. And this may seem really basic, but I'm telling you, I've been around youth and children's ministry long enough to know that a, a, there are a lot of Christian parents who love the Lord. They want the best for their kids. They bring their kids to church every time the doors are open, and they do not have many spiritual conversations with their kids. They don't consistently read the Bible with their children. I know this because I've, I've, I've just, I've seen it. Um, so, one, if you are not already, read the Bible with your kids consistently. Again, that sounds simple, um, but I think that there are a lot of Christian parents, again, who love the Lord, who are not doing this. Read the Bible with your kids. Now, if you have really small kids, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with a, a, a decent storybook, Bible-type thing. 
But I will say this, uh, that I have to confess that we used a storybook for way too long um, because it was like, oh, she can't handle, like, the ESV, right? Um, but the, the truth is that there is a power that's inherent to the word of God that's not inherent to a storybook. Um, so what we do is we have a reading plan that's for kids that's like four or five verses a day. It's not long, but we read it, we talk about it, right? So one, read the Bible with your kids. Two, pray with your kids consistently. Hopefully at meals and bedtime. Um, but if we're being honest, like you watch a lot of movies and people pray at meals. It doesn't, you know. Um, so hopefully you're praying at meals and bedtime, but not just there. Pray with your kids on a consistent basis. Uh, and, and I would say this too, that prayer is also a great time for teaching. I think often we get caught up with like prayer is just between me and God. Um, and that's true. But also listen to this. In John chapter 11, Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So what is Jesus doing? He's praying to the Father, and he says, I know you hear me, you always hear me, but I'm praying like this so that other people also hear it. Right? Jesus is using his prayer also to teach. As parents, grandparents, friends, neighbors, whatever, when we pray, it's also an opportunity to, pre- or to teach. For example, praying the gospel. Uh, when I, in my personal prayer time, I thank God for what he's accomplished in Christ. I, I don't get as specific with it, right? God doesn't need me to like perfectly detail exactly how the gospel works. But when I pray with my child at night, I get very, very, very specific with the gospel when we pray. Thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus, that we were separated, that we break your laws and we're separated because of our sin. And so you sent Jesus to take the punishment that we deserve on himself, that he died on the cross and paid for our sins, and then he came back from the dead. And I thank you that if anybody believes in him, they will be saved. I pray that Bexley comes to believe this one day, or that Tayton comes to believe this one day. And I, I will say one time, when I knew it was catching on, obviously, you know, we'll pray for Bexley's salvation one day. Um, one time, Bexley, it was her turn to pray, and at the end of the prayer, she said, and God, I pray for my daddy's salvation. <laughs> Like, well, it was a teaching opportunity, but it's like she's getting, she's getting some of it, right? So read the Bible with your kids. Pray with your kids. Um, and here's another one I'm going to throw out is, is the use of catechism. And I want to talk about what catechism is because I think a lot of people have a bad taste in their mouth about it. One, uh, because it's like, well, is that a, isn't that a Catholic thing or isn't that a Lutheran thing? But the truth is uh, that, that Baptists have made use of catechisms for about the first 300 years of of its history. And a catechism is simply questions and answers that teach, right? Questions and answers that teach. For example, the one we use starts off with who made me? God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. And it just goes down and builds a doctrinal foundation for, for kids, Charles Spurgeon said this about catechisms. He said, In matters of doctrine, you will find orthodox congregations frequently change to heterodoxy in the course of 30 or 40 years. 
And that is because too often there has been no catechizing of the children in the essential doctrines of the gospel. For my part, I am more and more persuaded that the study of a good scriptural catechism is of infinite value to our children. So, uh, despite a a taste that might be in your mouth um, regarding catechisms for whatever reasons, um, the Prince of Preachers said it, right? So maybe we should at least consider it. What he's saying is you have a, an, orthodox, an orthodox congregation who in 30 or 40 years becomes heterodox. Uh, what is 30 or 40 years? It's, it's a generation, right? So an orthodox church, and what he says about catechism is this, this orthodox church is solid biblically, they have biblical doctrine, but they don't instruct their kids in the doctrines of the faith. Maybe they share the gospel every week, and these kids know the gospel forward and back, but haven't been instructed in the, in the doctrines of the faith. So in 30, 40 years, when those kids are now the leaders of the church, they had no doctrinal foundation. And so the church is going wonky, right? Um, I mean, look around, right? Look around at the state of the church in the West. This is a problem. This is a problem. Okay, I experienced it myself of like not being instructed in the deep doctrines of the faith. And so you, you leave the home and all of a sudden you're just on shaky foundation because it's never been put there. I'm not saying the catechism has to be the way to do it. But catechism is often the most simple, uh, efficient, accessible way to do it with kids. I don't think I could sit down with Bexley uh, and Grudem's systematic theology, right? It's like 1,500 pages. But I can sit down with her with a book and ask her really simple questions. And it's not just a matter of memorizing the questions, but it's talking about the questions. It's not enough to like, uh, who wrote the Bible, right? Holy men are taught by the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not enough that she just knows that, but what does that mean? What does it mean that we learn how to love and obey God in the Bible alone? Uh, And then Calvin also said this, Believe me, the church of God will never be preserved without catechesis. That maybe is a strong statement, but I think what Calvin is saying is if we are not instructing our children in in the doctrines of the Christian faith, where's the church going to go? Where's it going to go if we're not instructing our children in the doctrines of the faith? And then I would also encourage maybe this, is combining all three of these in a a family worship. Um, And I can tell you what, what that looks like uh, for us, and it's really, really simple. We sit down um, after dinner, whenever you want to do it, but we sit down and we open our Bibles. Uh, Bexley opens her Bible, Megan opens her Bible, I open my Bible, and we look at our reading plan and we say, Today is Genesis 3 1 through 5. And we read five verses and we talk about those five verses. And then we open the catechism and we go through the catechism questions. And usually she has a question about something somewhere in there. And when that question pops up, we stop and talk about it. Or we do a new question, we talk about what that means. And then we sing together. Um, and on that, we, we do have an advantage in our home uh, in that we happen to know what songs are coming up that Sunday, right? Uh, and so typically I'll take one or two of the songs that we're singing Sunday and we sing those all week. Um, and I can also tell you, like, I, I, I mean... I do it for a living, uh, and it, it was really uncomfortable when we first started doing it. Um, so if you're not a musically inclined family, it might, it might be uncomfortable. 
but we have some friends who none of them, no offense to them, and they know who they are, are musically inclined in the least. Um, and yet they do it, right? And they, you know, we just do the doxology. We sing the doxology. Um, and and it's, it's a blessing. It just really is. Uh, that's when Bexley was holding her hand up and doing the chair lean. Like three feet from my face. That was the only awkward part, staring right at me. But So we sing, um, and then we pray. And we usually let Bexley choose the order. What's the order tonight? Mom, Dad, and then me. And we pray together, and the whole thing takes 15 to 20 minutes. It's not a long thing, but it is an intentional time, um, not every day, but most days, to sit down and to worship the Lord together. And it's, it's fruitful. It's a blessing. It communicates to our kids that, that this is important. This is the core um, central tenet of our family life, is that we worship God together. Um, now, I think this is something I would encourage, even if you don't have small children in the home, uh, I think everybody should, should be doing this at some level. Grandparents, do it when your grandkids are over. Um, I know especially, we have many grandparents in this church that I know, uh, your kids are, are maybe not believers, or they're backslidden believers, um, and they are not, they're not raising your grandkids in the instruction of the Lord. Like, I know that that exists in this church. So I would encourage you, that you make every effort you can to take on that role. When your grandkids, I know, you know, I don't want to name names, but um, some grandparents who, man, like they see it, that like this is my responsibility then. Maybe I didn't do with my kids what I should have done, and my grandkids are reaping the benefits of it. But I'm going to take every effort I can. Um, I'm sending them Bibles, and I'm sending them books, and is this a good book? And when my kids or my grandkids are in town, I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. I'm going to share the gospel. We're going to read the Bible together. Great opportunities. Family worship, even when other kids happen to be over, uh, right? I'm like, well, hey, just so happens. Look what time it is, right? Good opportunity. Join us for family worship. Here's the thing. Is that people, going back to that quote at the beginning that talked about tradition, slaves to parental tradition, or uh, I don't want to indoctrinate my children. People talk about indoctrinating your children. You see the media all the time like it's a bad thing. And I'm just like, yeah, like I'm absolutely indoctrinating my children. Like I am a father. Why would I not indoctrinate my children? Because the truth is we're all indoctrinating our kids, right? We're indoctrinating them in the instruction of the Lord or we're indoctrinating them like, yeah, we go to church on Sunday. We go on Wednesday, but it's not that big of a deal, right? We are all indoctrinating our children. The question is, what are we indoctrinating them with? And if you are a parent, God has given you, I would say, your primary responsibility is to indoctrinate your children, to teach them what it means to love God, to fear God, to obey God, what the gospel is, what it means to live a gospel-centered life. I'm going to read this from D.A. Carson again. He says, Basic Bible knowledge does not ensure the kind of knowledge of God's will that Paul has in mind. He's talking, it's in a book just about um, the will of God. But ignorance of the Bible, the focal place where God has so generously disclosed his will, pretty well ensures that we will not be filled with this knowledge of God's will. So I'm going to restate this. Leading and teaching our kids the gospel and the knowledge of biblical doctrine does not guarantee that they'll come to believe in Christ and grow in spiritual maturity. This is not a guarantee. Some of you can attest to that, right? But not leading and not teaching our kids the gospel 
and the knowledge of biblical doctrine pretty well ensures that they won't, right? We can't make them believe it, but if we don't give them something to believe, then what will they believe? At Northridge, we believe fully in the sovereignty of God, but the Bible is also clear that God uses ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary sovereign purposes. So while we believe in the sovereignty of God, that that we can't save our kids, only God can save our kids, what we do trust is that the ordinary means and the biblical witness is that the ordinary means by which God uses to bring a child into salvation, into maturity, is primarily, not alone, but primarily what happens in the home. And the church comes alongside and helps in that and equips that. And last, closing up, I want to... I want to tie into revival because we've, this is our uh, first week out of our revival emphasis. And I would say that we all know that we cannot see national awakening if we don't see corporate revival in the church. We cannot see corporate revival in the church if we don't see personal revival in the members of the church. Everybody would agree with this. We won't see... Um, Revival in the church, if revival is not happening in our own homes. If revival doesn't happen in our homes, we can't expect it to just show up and like, oh, boom, the spirit is there, right? It's not how it works. I want to read this, Joel Beakey. He has a book called Family Worship. He says, would we see revival among our children? Let us remember that God often uses the restoration of family worship to usher in church revival. For example, the 1677 Church Covenant of the Puritan Congregation in Dorchester, Massachusetts, included the commitment to reform our families, engaging ourselves to a conscientious care, to set before us and to maintain the worship of God in them, and to walk in our houses with perfect hearts and a faithful discharge of all domestic duties, educating, instructing, and charging our children and households to keep the ways of the Lord." And Beaky goes on to write, As goes the home, so goes the church, so goes the nation. Right? We can, I think, point to any number of things that have created the cultural climate that we're in. Uh, but certainly this is one of them. Right? Certainly this is one of them. We've seen the breakdown of the nuclear family and all of these things. Um, I, I just, as, as parents, as a church body... We need to take this seriously. That God has given us a mandate to lead our kids in holiness and to lead our kids in the instruction of the Lord. So Chris is going to come up and, and play um, just for a few minutes. And, and what I would encourage is um, just to, to spend some time praying and thinking about this. And, and I, I hope this doesn't come across as a, a guilt trip. Uh, I hope what it comes across is to maybe think about it a little bit. I think it's maybe something that, that um, we just overlook. Right? We get busy with things, our kids' school, kids' sports, whatever. Maybe we overlook the most important aspect of being a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a friend. So Chris is going to play, and we're going to spend uh, just a few moments in uh, just reflection and in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Mm-hmm.